Malcolm, this is an interesting situation. Malcolm Honline, who's with us every Friday for the weekly update, uh, he told us he'd be back in the U.S. this morning, and officially he is in the U.S., but uh, the plane was uh, so late that he's actually uh, traveling uh, by car from the airport, and that's how we're going to connect with him this morning. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Was it a great journey, and did you make that stop in Greece, as you originally had told us you would? Yes, I uh, I didn't go to Cyprus. Uh, some of my colleagues did, but I stayed for the funeral uh, for Arik Sharon, and then I went to Greece where I met the president, prime minister, foreign minister, and other leaders in a really two-day whirlwind trip that was very productive and reflects some of the changes in the Mediterranean basin that could have really long-term consequences for the good. Well, you, uh, you of course, are referring to the world political angle of it. So much of the news from Greece over the last, I don't know, year or two in this area has been about the economic situation. Were you able to get a handle speaking with leaders in that region about what's going on with that situation at this point? Look, it remains very serious. The unemployment rate is still very high. It's over 25%, especially amongst young people. It's even higher. Uh, the There is a turnabout. Things are getting somewhat better, but it'll be a long-term project to, to really revitalize it. And they have the problems of the influx of foreigners. And, of course, the big issue that has gotten a lot of attention is the Golden Dawn Party, which is a neo-Nazi extremist party. But uh, they arrested uh, some of the leaders this week and have outlawed the party, essentially. Uh, they sit the parliament, but they've been very isolated, and the government has taken bold and concrete actions which I hope will be replicated in other countries where these kind of extremist uh, parties like Jobbik are, are rising in Hungary and um, all over Europe, in fact. Uh, and before we talk about the funeral, uh, why did uh, part of the group uh, go to Cyprus? What was there? Well, uh, the truth is that this we're talking about an Israel-Cyprus-Greece alliance, uh, or an uh, informal alliance, I should say, connection where everything from common tourism, uh, energy exploration, uh, security issues, Israel and Greece have been doing a lot of joint exercises and training. Uh, the Greeks have been very uh, open to, to Israel's needs for strategic depth, etc. So this is um, uh, this is a budding relationship, uh, and Cyprus is a key element in it as well. So they went to Cyprus meet the president and prime minister and other officials. What were your impressions of the Sharon funeral? And I, I, I mean uh, n- not to look back at his entire life right now, but in terms of the ceremony and event itself, uh, I mean, you, you were there as an insider and uh, and saw how many people from around the world attended. What were your impressions of the funeral? Well, I think it was very dignified. It was extremely well organized. I mean, split second. And people, leaders who were there who told me that they contrasted it to the Mandela funeral, which seems to have been very chaotic and uh, uh, not organized well. Uh, They told me here that, uh, I mean, everybody was handled. There weren't that many world leaders, of course. It wasn't comparable to the Mandela turnout or or others. But, uh, you know, Vice President Biden was there, Tony Blair, many others uh, who came. And uh, and I have to say also that it, it, it... I think would have been something he would have appreciated that obviously the military component was very strong in terms of the speeches, people he was closest with, who generals and others 
who spoke about him and at the, the farm his kids, his sons uh, spoke. Uh, they did not at the Knesset ceremony, which is guided by established protocol, I think, as to who gets to speak and not. Interesting. And uh, one of the things that uh, was noted was Zev Hever was there and spoke, an old friend of Sharon from Gush Amunim, somebody who was very critical of him during the time of the disengagement. Was that a surprise that he appeared there? It was. Uh, to me, it was a surprise. But, uh, you know, Sharon's life went through many phases, and whatever differences people had, there was always a sense of loyalty, especially amongst the uh, camaraderie of the generals and the military people. But... Uh, you saw the spectrum uh, of people who turned out. Uh, I was fortunate to be in the front row, so I could see everybody on the opposite side. You know, they were facing each other and see all of the spectrum of political and religious leaders who came. And uh, there was not, there were not many from the United States. Um, uh, Elliot Engel and uh, Debbie uh, Schultz, uh, Wasserman Schultz was there um, uh, with the vice president, and uh, the organizational representation was very limited. But the, uh, you know, amongst the Israelis, and especially during this, the time he laid in the state, and you saw the thousands of people who came by really represented the spectrum of the Israeli population. Uh, might one of his sons go into Israeli politics? Uh, some people I spoke to said they had the feeling that at least one would. Yeah, that's been speculated a, a lot, um, but I don't know. I didn't see any sign of it. Uh, also, WikiLeaks reported that Sharon, as prime minister, planned more withdrawals after the Gaza disengagement. Is there any reason not to believe that? There are these reports. Uh, I asked people. Nobody seemed to have any kind of confirmation about it, but uh, that report was uh, circulated, but it died very quickly, so I don't know whether you know, anybody found any substance to it. And rockets were fired from Gaza after Sharon's funeral. Timing coincidence or not? No, not at all. But there have been a series of attacks in the days before, and uh, one of the reasons why there was hesitancy to have the, farm, the funeral at the farm was the fear that they would uh, um, fire, and they did, and they landed some kilometers away. That never posed an immediate threat, and the Iron Dome was deployed and knocked down five missiles in one day. Uh, but this, there is an escalation, clearly, from Gaza, and the IAF uh, responded appropriately. And... Uh, Yesterday, it seemed to have been quiet. And to sum it up uh, in terms of uh, his life, now that the funeral has taken place, uh, essentially, it's just, I guess, one big conflict. Depending on who you are, you remember Ariel Sharon in, uh, in many, many different ways, right? That's true. And, look, you can't deny his contribution, his bravery, his courage, what he did in the 73 war and other times. And he went through... Clearly, some major changes. I don't know that we'll ever understand exactly why. I heard various people commenting and speculating or claiming they had discussions. I talked to him many times. I had a very good relationship with him. Um, and I honestly do not know what motivated him on, on a lot of the decisions and things that we had to talk about. But I think no one can deny his consistent concern for the state, for his, as a Jewish state, and also, for the Jewish people, he cared very much about what people in the diaspora believed and, and uh, were concerned about, and said that first and foremost, he is a Jew. He said that every time he came to the States and in speeches in Israel as well. Fascinating figure. Really unbelievable. Sure. And when you think about the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys in his career, I don't know if anybody ever had such extremes, just unbelievable, including 
the last eight years, of course. Um, all right, this is the story of the day. I'll start with this only because you were just there, so I'm curious. Did you know about the Netanyahu-Abdullah meeting before it took place? Uh, I was in Greece when it took place, but uh, I did meet with the prime minister before I left. And uh, I did not know exactly when, but I did know that, uh, that they talked about having a meeting this week. So how unusual is this? Obviously, it's a headline, and everyone you know, calls it. He met with him three or four times over the last year. It's not that unusual for the two of them to get together. This is a you know, especially critical time with the peace process and other things going on for them to discuss. And uh, But it, it's not that unusual. They do talk quite regularly. So what do we call this? Is it a negotiation? Is there a dispute? Is this just a get-together to make sure everyone's on the same page? I wouldn't page? say it's a dispute because I think they agree on most things. I think it's a consultation is uh, the best way to put it. And consulting on what? What types of issues? On the peace process or concerns about the Jordan Valley. And that is, you know, Jordan's concerns are as great as Israel, maybe even greater, uh, to talk about the developments in the region vis-a-vis Hamas and and. Uh, um, what's happening in Syria, the movement of the refugees, and, and concern regarding Iran. Uh, and is the, uh, the Jordan, I guess this is a, um, uh, maybe in some ways a rhetorical question, because it seems that it applies to every country uh, in the Middle East at this point, but would you say that Jordan's concern for Syria and for Iran is as strong as Israel's? For Syria, absolutely, uh, because they have a million refugees there, and the number grows, and of course there's a big border. And Syria always had designs on Jordan as part of what they considered greater Syria at one time. But the uh, the concern regarding Iran is very great, especially given developments in Iraq where the feeling of Iran taking over, or certainly through Maliki, the head of the government, and the, the Sunni-Shiite divide, which would affect them as well. So the instability in the region impacts Jordan disproportionately because of its own balances within its population and uh, the, the nature of the of the government there. Yeah, I spoke to some high school Israel advocacy students this week, and I'm dedicating this question to them. Malcolm, why is it that, as compared to other countries, Israel has what seems to be a much stronger relationship and simply get along better with Jordan? Because they have common interests. They have a common border that's very important. Their concerns regarding what happens within the Palestinian Authority areas is as great as Israel's because it spills over to them, where they have a two-thirds Palestinian population already, where you have Muslim Brotherhood active, you have uh, this influx of of, uh, refugees. Uh, All of these issues really bond Israel and Jordan together, and uh, they cooperate. The military security cooperation has always been been outstanding, even though the king, as is understandable, has at times be critical. But the level of cooperation has been sustained. Malcolm, Homeline weekly update. Um, <laughs> this uh, dust-up between the Defense Minister of Israel and the Secretary of State in the U.S. Could you first tell us what really happened in terms of Yalon's statement? And then I'll ask you about whether his apology was necessary. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I actually spoke the, the day before. We had a, I had a meeting with him. And... Um, Look, there's deep concern all over about the substance negotiations, the you know, 11, 12 visits already by um, Secretary Kerry, many other things that uh, have impacted. And um, he gave a private interview, an off-the-record private interview with uh, Shimon Schiffer, who then proceeded to publish some of the content. So it violates you know, a basic uh, media rule and principle, but the 
uh, you know, of course, when somebody says something like that, it's going to get a lot of coverage. He basically said that, uh, I, the way I understood it, give the man his Nobel Peace Prize so he'll leave us alone, right? Basically, that's the, that's the way it went? Well, that was, the, that was the last thing he said. But he said he talked about it being obsessive, uh, right. sets of interest, that he right. was a messianic view, and what the feeling is that they... But but I, I don't know that, that those terms are right. I do think that he has an inordinate focus on this because he feels that it's a place of the movement. It is an air of responsibility that was given to him. Uh, look, the, if you look at the rest of the region, what's happening in Iraq, Afghanistan, the Syrian negotiation, the, uh, Iran, there isn't much there that you can point to with great pride and say we, we've had a great accomplishment yeah. in the That's deal with true. Iran, which I think we'll, we'll talk about, but which has a lot of flaws and a lot of problems. Um, so this is the area, and it, it is the thing for which people get Nobel Prizes, and the president gave him this this arena to play in and to, to see what he could do. So he is very determined to do it. So with all that in I'm sorry? I was just going to say, but there are a lot of things that you know don't come necessarily visible to the public. There's supposed to be side understandings or the assurance that he gave the Palestinians about 67 borders, many other things that uh, complicated. But he has had regular communication with the prime minister, on a, sometimes two, three times a week or more. And he has visited there, as I said, uh, I think a dozen times. So with all that in mind, was the Yalon apology necessary? If you notice, he did not apologize. He said that if the, that he didn't intend to uh, insult, and if he took his words as if it was hurtful or harmful, he apologized for that. He did not retract <laughs> what he said. Yeah, correct. But but certainly his uh, those who are not al- aligned with him in the Knesset uh, took it as an apology. They were they were upset that he apologized. Well, certainly, he had to say something to defuse the situation. Right. And what was? What, did BB have a reaction to this? Uh, BB made statements reaffirming the relationship with Kerry and trying to contain the damage. I read an article, in the, I forgot who wrote it, it was on the Jerusalem Post website, that basically everybody's got to chill out, because if we think that one insult like this is going to make the U.S.-Israel relationship collapse, then you have another thing coming. And I thought that was, that was there was a little bit of truth to that, that uh, you know this is not the disaster that some people in the media are painting it to be. And, and uh, you know, the, we also have to look at the fact that many times language is used that is unfortunate, whether intentional or not, as the United States, uh, some of the statements that came out of the National Security Council against senators who didn't support, who, who supported the legislation on Iran and didn't support the administration position, and they hinted that they want to drive to war, they were warmongers, uh, these kind of ter- this terminology, this is unacceptable. Right. Uh, and you didn't see apologies for it uh, coming forward, but they certainly toned down the rhetoric. Malc- it, it happens. Should it happen? That's a good question. Was it wise? You know, and becomes a distraction. Uh, also, a good question that uh, I guess we'll know in time. Understood. Malcolm Honline, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Again, you were just in Jerusalem, so it gives me more of an impetus to uh, bring this up uh, today. Will the new police station uh, in the Harazetim Cemetery on the Mount of Olives, will it in fact help uh, deter all the rock throwing that has become commonplace up there? I certainly hope that it will. It, it's got the station is there. The problem is that there's nobody in it, and I've had I had a series of discussions um, uh, about this, and I hope that it'll be uh, 
that we're moving towards rectification. The government is allotting a lot of money. Oh, so when they say March, for, when they say March first, that means that they're actually going to pay attention and man the station on March first. That's when it's going to begin. The, 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 the station is there, the police station, the, um, and there were people in it periodically, but not on a sustained basis, and that's that's the problem. And that's what's going to change. In other words, they're going to make an effort. Well, also, more cameras are going to be up there, uh. or uh, people will be uh, um, assigned to it, including uh, Shinbet, which is very important. they also talking about closing the entrance, one entrance to the school, which is where most of the problems emerged from. And um, that, that uh, would make a difference. Also, we found out that the school closes at three, and the buses pick them up at five or one and five, one and three. And that during all that time, they were able to do a lot of mischief. A lot of downtime. You know what that leads to. Uh, the Prime Minister of Canada is arriving in Israel after this weekend. Correct. Now, I just wanted to say that there is a serious approach, and that the Security Cabinet did address this this last week which is a big progress, and largely due to the committee here and the Lubinskis and others who have been really devoted to it. All right, so there's movement in that area. The Prime Minister of Canada is set to arrive in Jerusalem beginning of next week, correct? Absolutely. Ha- a delegation, I think, of 200 Canadian leaders, Jewish leaders, business leaders, others. It's a huge thing, and as you know, he's been outspokenly pro-Israel. So they're looking forward to him with uh, great anticipation. And have we discovered why yet? Not that anyone needs a reason to <laughs> to be allied with Israel, but is it something about his background, relationships, associations that has given him uh, this amazing desire to publicly laud the Jewish state constantly? Uh, I think, first of all, it is, it is personal. I think it is also some people have said to me, you know, his religious views and other views that his view of the world. But it wasn't isolated. You know, during the Sharon's uh, um, funeral, one of the visitors was the uh, an official from, uh, I think, the Prime Minister of Australia. And she made a remarkable statement that it's calling the settlements illegal under international law is wrong. She said, I defy you to show me one international law that they violate. Wow. So we have friends around the world. And uh, Greece... I said it's a remarkable turnabout. Other countries, and even some in the Middle East, are looking to Israel very differently than they have in the past. Uh, we keep reading about, I mean, you, you mentioned the Nazi parties in Europe, and we keep reading about the uh, European Union and concerted efforts to uh, uh, condemn Israel or boycott Israel. It's good, to, it's good to hear that there's some countries on this globe that are taking a different approach. Yes, but we, I want to, just to, that we not uh, minimize the impact of the boycott movement. We spent the whole day yesterday in consultations. We had people from Europe and all over the world came to Jerusalem. And we spent literally the whole day talking about it. And in America, it's serious, and it became more clear because of the American Studies Association issue. Yeah, but isn't the epicenter, isn't the epicenter of the boycott uh, a trend Europe? Isn't that the... Uh, yes. It is. Yes, but I'm saying that, that when you listen to them and how much... They encounter on a daily basis this problem. I mean, we counted periodically, increasingly. We saw Modern Languages Association. And why, I know many of your listeners and others were always curious or questioning about why I put so much emphasis on this issue of the delegitimization. And I keep telling that it is one of the challenges of our time. It is next to Iran the most serious issue we face. Right. 
No question about that. Have you landed yet? It sounds like you're still uh, riding the plane over there. No, I'm here on the ground. (laughs) When we said we were speaking to Malcolm during the tail end of his trip, we meant it, folks. Prime Minister Netanyahu has declared that he would meet with the president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, uh, but insists that Tehran must be willing to recognize Israel. Actually, to be more accurate, he said he would consider a meeting if Iran went ahead and recognized Israel. I don't think we're going to have this problem to face in the very near future, right? I think that uh, Rouhani's comments would indicate that uh, he shouldn't pack his bags at this point. <laughs> right. That the if you, if you look at some of the things that he said, this is a guy with whom we've signed this, or well, we didn't actually sign an agreement. It's one of the important points is that it's an understanding, a working plan, and we don't know what side agreements are. There are all sorts of reports about additional components that we may not know about. We've seen the this week the Russians announcing this. $1.5 billion a month uh, oil deal, the Iranians, a $50 billion deal. All the time we're being told that the sanctions regime is sustained. It is, but it's, this is clearly major breakthroughs, and they are, and Rouhani uh, speaks about it all the time, emphasizing what, uh, what, what the benefits they got. And they actually, he actually used the term that America surrendered in this deal. And the fact is that they are allowed to continue research on the centrifuges, the more and more advanced centrifuges, which is very troubling. And in one of the discussions with the U.S. officials, they said, so what if they have the gold? But what can they do? It's just value for value, and it's not. Gold is what enables them to bypass the sanctions that are imposed on the on the banks. And we know that these new, new uh, generation centrifuges are being allowed to be used to be tested for research. But all of that means is that when the deal actually collapses, or formally collapses, that they'll be able to rush ahead with a much faster uh, uh, process of enrichment. Right. The other thing is the IEA has been given inspection. I mean, these are the points that are being raised as the good things. Uh, but in fact, they're not. They say themselves that they don't have enough access to really do a thorough job on monitoring what the, what is happening there. In fact, I read somewhere this week that one of the nuclear officials in Iran had said that uh, within a day we're back up and running. Like, don't don't worry about this agreement or not this agreement. It's not going to stifle us in the least. And they have an extra ton of stuff that they have been able to to enrich. So I'm still told that the basis will be the November amounts, the 7,000 tons that they had enriched. I don't know if it makes a difference if you have 7,000 tons that are 8,000 tons. The fact is that they can enrich quickly. The new centrifuges will enable them to do it even more quickly. And and they're being very blatant in their internal statements. They still talk about about defeating the United States, about express extending their influence. And uh, and while we would like to see a resolution, it doesn't seem that what we're being presented with, we see that increased activities backing Hezbollah, backing uh, Assad, uh, increased activities in uh, in Iraq and many other things, which are for, for uh, furthering the instability of the region, not the stability. What does it mean that on the 29th of January, you and inspectors will visit nuclear mines in Iran for the first time in nine years? What, what is that? What is a nuclear mine, and what is this all about? Okay, this is, these are the uranium mines where they uh, will be able for the first time to inspect the facilities. This is part of the deal to look at all the phases of enrichment, which means mining uranium, processing uranium, uh, 
taking it then to the to the enrichment facilities, enriching it, weaponizing it, and putting it on a missile to deliver. A lot of steps, so huh? Under the agreement, R&D, research and development, is not impacted. The missiles are not. The weaponization is not. But they do have periodic visits. But these are arranged visits or supervised visits, I think they're called, which means that, uh, you know, they will have to make an appointment. They can't just drop in and say, hello, I'm here for tea, and I want to see what you're digging out of the ground here and what you're processing. But Israel's position and many others feel that there should be no enrichment, no processing on Iranian soil. But what, uh, get, what gets me is if this step is important in this, you know, in the entire process, I mean, I, I always thought there was, I don't know, some type of shuttle of U.N. inspectors into Iran, even... You know, even even during times when there wasn't a formal agreement, wasn't there wasn't there always some type of UN inspection of this process over the last few years? Or am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. It's a very, it's actually a very good question because it's very unclear for most people. There were periodic inspections of designated facilities. They were these were had to be arranged. They knew in advance when they were coming. But most of the facilities, like Parchin, which we have talked about, I know this gets technical for people, but it's really important. The, the, the military facilities have never been breached, and they're not being inspected now under this deal. Parchin is where we believe that they did the experimentation on weaponization, and that facility has not been visited. So what this does is it does broaden the inspection. It takes them into the Iraq plutonium facility. Now, again, I hear that there was the stepped-up activities to... to finish as much as possible for the deadline of January 20th, um, 29th, when when all this activities is, is supposed to stop and the agreement uh, implemented. Uh, the enrichment to the 20% enriched stuff is supposed to be out of there in three months, six months, that was a, a change, but we'll wait and see how fast they do it. Uh, and, and a lot of this stuff is uh, un- can be undone, just as the sanctions release can be released. Right can be reversed, they say, uh, I think it will be very hard because so many people will have entrenched interests and so many things will have happened that it's not just something you can shut off and, and shut on. What, what is clear is that Tehran has continued to grow its nuclear program. They are producing new generations of the, uh, in uh, Natanz and Fordo, uh, centrifuges for their facilities. They have 19,000 centrifuges in place. They're, they're continuing uh, their expansion in the region. And look how Zarif visited Lebanon, visited Jordan, visited other countries, the foreign minister of Iran, that is. Uh, so they're doing anything but backing off now. All right. So as I understand it now, and I think I'm starting to get it a drop, so the 29th is essentially the deadline for the agreement in that at that point, U.N. inspectors will have the right or will exercise their right to start from the very beginning of the process and inspect every step of the process that they are allowed to. They're saying that they still do not have enough access, that right. they have limited access, but they don't have enough to really do the job right, which means that we have to make sure that the IEA should be given greater access, greater number of inspectors uh, that can go in and on a regular basis monitor exactly what is happening there. But the, the deal now goes into, into effect. What the, the IEA people have said that that. that they increased access to Iran to monitor the agreement, um, but it says it needs to investigate suspicions that they may have uh, worked on designing a bomb and to look at other facilities, and um, uh, th- th- all of this needs uh, much more uh, adva- much more uh, sophisticated investigation. And the reports that they have a GPS-guided right. ballistic missile under development, 
these are all things that they would like to learn about. Is there any level of investigation that you'd be satisfied with? Meaning, is there, you know, just we talk about sanctions and, and alternatives to military strikes. Is there any level of inspection, better word than investigation, is there any level of inspection that you would be satisfied with? I would say if they send in all the OU mashkichim and we can have full access <laughs> to, to inspect everything, that may be. But the, the truth is that they have the ability to create clandestine facilities. I don't know that we'll ever know the full truth. It's a big country. 70 million people, big area. They have a record of doing things in secret. So could there be, would I be surprised that tomorrow it came out that they had additional facilities where they're testing, where they're doing research and development, where they may have additional centrifuges? I would not. I think these are the main facilities, and, and you know, putting them on hold right now is a good thing. The problem is that this deal is, is full of, uh, of so many loopholes, and there's so many things that... Uh, um, you know, mitigate against seeing them uh, having gone through some sort of uh, metamorphosis and, and long-term uh, change. He says that, as I told you, when he when he puts things in the term that the surrender of the great Satan, the great Satan meaning the United States, and that the Geneva Agreement itself is um, has broken the wall of sanctions, and he, he boasts about you know the achievement. And this is the same guy who did this when he was negotiator. In, uh, in, 19, uh, in, in 2003 and wrote a book about how he lied and obfuscated it. I mean, and we see the same per pattern emerging here. It sounds like there's no level of inspection that you'd be satisfied with. It sounds like to me, and by the way, the other option, which uh, we haven't discussed in a while, it's also possible. You mentioned that they could have clandestine activities going on, and uh, you know, other. And you wouldn't be surprised if you found out that, uh, if I never found out, that they had other areas where they were building these types of facilities, there could, there could be allies as well. They, they could be distracting the entire world while a neighbor of theirs is going ahead and helping them uh, develop these weapons. Is that far-fetched? Is that a little too crazy? Not at all. Remember, the, the reactor in Syria that Israel uh, eliminated was an Iranian-North Korean project. Right. So there you and have it. We, and we know that they're doing a lot of things uh, with North Korea. So we are, we are constantly looking at Iran and with their alliances in both South America and other areas of the Middle East and other areas of the world. Who knows what they're controlling at this point? And, and remember, Iran today, I, when we were in Greece, they showed me uh, um, graphs which showed the missile range from Iran covering Greece. So uh, as much as we do those things in regard to Israel and the Middle East, they're worried. I mean, other countries, well. European countries, are looking at this, and they're worried, and they know what a, what a danger it poses because Iran is operating throughout the Balkans, the Baltics, the, everywhere. They're trying to expand their influence, and they have today over 400 ballistic missiles, and some of them can carry a 750 kilogram uh, warhead. Syria has two to three hundred. They've used some of them in the war. Some are probably disabled. They have tens of thousands of uh, of rockets between Syria and Hezbollah, and tens of thousands more of the light rockets, which are being turned into smart rockets, according to reports, where they put on uh, sensors and homing sensors and GPS. Well, because part of the problem was that all these rockets would be fired, but they didn't have, you know, missile guidance systems, so they could hit anywhere. Today, even these smaller rockets are now being equipped with uh, uh, more up-to-date homing devices and sensors, as well as GPS uh, guidance systems. Wow. So there's a whole new level of danger, but this um, uh, range of strike uh, w capability includes Europe. 
as well. You know, Greece being one part of it, but it can strike up to the heart of Europe. It's amazing. Uh, we, we concentrate so much on Israel, we don't consider what other countries are going through in terms of their own security vis-a-vis Iran. It was There was a story this week, which, I don't know, it seemed to be somewhat of a big deal about Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State mulling over the possibility of giving Israel a green light for a strike on Iran. Is there, I mean, I would, I would imagine anybody in her position, including the Secretary of State today, is always mulling over that question. Is this a news story? Well, I don't think it's a news story. I, uh, I had the opportunity to discuss uh, uh, with her before she became a, a Secretary of State, and I know she had very strong views in Iran at the time. Uh, but during the tenure of the first uh, Obama administration, we did not see that kind of, of strength. Was there and is there always going to be that option of, you know, saying, of taking hands off and letting Israel do what it has to do? You know, we'll have to write, wait till the next volume of her memoirs comes out and she has a chance to really put it in uh, perspective. <laughs> but other officials, I know for sure, have always talked about it. What you said was important before about, you know, we focus on Israel. Right. But the reason we do is because Israel is the only country that's standing up now to Iran. Right. If you look at all the rest, they're collapsing in front of them. They're sending trade delegations. They want to get in on the money. And they don't think about the potential that this could be, you know, a major change in the whole region that Iran allowed to rejoin the international community without having given up anything will pose such great dangers in the future to all of them. But you ha- there's got to be other countries you could put in that category. I mean, even Jordan. I mean, you know, we just discussed at the beginning of this conversation. They of course, ass- but they, but, and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, they're much more worried. Even than Israel, they say Israel can defend itself. We can't. Many countries, Bahrain, the, all of the, the Gulf areas, oh, so and many others. They're not taking as active a role because they simply don't believe they have the capability. Israel, they look to as one that has the capability. That's what they say, that Israel's our only hope to, to do it. They said, we'll condemn them, but it's our only hope. <laughs> we'll condemn them. They're our only hope. Doesn't that sum it up? Are you for or against this uh, ban of the word Nazi in Israel? I, I don't know that you can really ban individual words. It's the usage. I mean, what what somebody taught you, it depends the context in which it's used. I do think, though, that extremism and the and the danger of using language and and minimizing it, and, and it's not just the use of the word Nazi, you know, this news, Quinell, whatever it's called, the salute, the Nazi salute, right. is spreading to all the sports in Europe. Now, this is a way of expressing anti-Semitism. You know, you can't say Heil Hitler because it's against the law in many countries, but you do this Quinell, which is was divided by the comedian Dugan, who's blatantly anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. Um, and and it, the message was clear to people who, who knew what it was. It was more subtle. Now it's less so as people recognize it. And when sports figures use it, some recently apologized. They didn't know what it meant. They just did it. Now people know what it means. And when you see it, you've you got to know it. And incitement is becoming a big issue in the Middle East. The prime minister has talked consistently with U.S. officials and others about the PA. And what makes it unique in the PA is that it's government-sponsored. It's coming through official media uh, broadcast television programs, uh, textbooks, many other things. And I know for, for, again, it's the kind of thing that people tend to dismiss and they say, well, you know, we're all used to it. No, this is a major obstacle to peace, and it's got to be portrayed, and there has to be a constant effort to expose. And I think, in general, when it comes to the delegitimization and the efforts to demonize and too often we dismiss the words and people say, why do you fight over this expression or that expression? I think now the time has come that we have to raise the profile, that we have to go after every one of them like we did with the American Studies Association. We have to nip it in the butt right away. 
avoid spreads because it's becoming too commonplace. We have to be more aggressive and in intelligent ways. It doesn't mean, you know, we declare nuclear war every time something happens. You have to do it in a proportionate way. But it has to be very clear that this is unacceptable, and we're not going to back off. Look, there are other positive developments, too. You know, the Egyptian vote, the, the uh, stability of Egypt, which would be a, a great asset if the military were able to, to establish it. And now they're, they're talking about going after Hamas uh, now that they uh, have hopefully neutralized the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and certainly are taking a more aggressive stance in, in the Sinai. Um, so, the, the, I mean, there are uh, positive uh, developments. But um, if, if you look at what what the, the nature of, to go back to your original question, about the changing nature of the discourse right. and where Nazi salutes and Nazi references have, that the, the, the hate behind it, the, the danger, the, the true story is now being lost. Yeah, but I was asking from the, uh, from the uh, point of view of this proposed Israeli bill that uh, they don't want the word in, used in Israel to, you know, one against the other. That's what they are. Right. Well, it shouldn't be used. It should be we, we, we mitigate the, the true story of the Shoah by doing it. Right. But again, you know, the, the, the laws are different. America doesn't have libel laws, for instance. We, right. we, we can't outlaw Holocaust denial. We can take action against it. But in Europe, it's against the law. In Israel, right. it's against the law. Um, so, Somewhat different. Before we wrap up, I'm always curious about this, and I forgot to ask you at the beginning of the conversation. Is there an Orthodox or what you would call a traditional community in Greece? There's Chabad, and the community, especially in Saloniki, which was a great Jewish community, right. you know, the ports used to close down on Shabbos and Yantar because the, all the stevedores were Jewish and right. Jews controlled the ports. Uh, it was a, a magnificent community. There are now a little over 5,000, maybe up to 6,000 Jews in all of Greece. Uh, but they have, uh, they have functioning synagogues and kosher food. And, um, in Saloniki, there are also facilities. The government, by the way, has invests a lot in emphasizing the Jewish history, the Jewish past, the Jewish connection. It's, it's really widely discussed. Interesting. All right. Welcome back to the U.S. My pleasure. Thank you. It's good to to be back, I guess. But Jerusalem was so beautiful. The weather has been beautiful, the, and business seems to be doing pretty well. A lot of visitors there. Tourism record month in December, so a lot to be uh, to be appreciative of. No question about that. Malcolm Honline, I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll reconvene next week. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM.